Hello, date night family. We are so pumped to spend the hour with you. Today, we're talking guy stuff. And by the way, my wife looks very beautiful. I just saw her. She's wearing a wintry jacket and a little hoodie. You just look so hip and cool. You are so sweet. But we're talking guy stuff today. So does this mean you're kicking us out? Yes, my love. You're not a man, which I'm grateful for. Yes. But you're going to have to go. So can you give us, ladies, a sneak peek? (laughs) I can. We're just going to go over biblical marks of a man and make a list, evaluate it like an owner's manual, and look at ways we can grow together as guys. Nothing fancy guy stuff. Well, I love it. Well, sisters, in all seriousness, this pod is for the men. And one of the challenges our husbands can face is being bombarded, well-intended. Well-intended, of course. Yes, with truth from us, when they're more likely to understand and embrace truth coming from other men. So, what we'd recommend is that you forward them this episode and tell them that you're not going to listen and that you'll trust that God will use it however he sees fit. And down the road, if he wants you to hear it, then he can let you know. And that way, he can make any adjustments in his life without even the slightest sense you're crossing your arms, tapping your foot, and looking over his shoulder, (laughs) kind of like I'm doing right now. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. We learn best from other men. Uh, And I have the perfect, by the way, button for this episode. There it is. Love it. So we're going to go ahead and send you packing, my love. I love you. Kisses and hugs. Make sure Ethan's ready. Let's get this party started. Okay, brothers, let me clear my throat here. It hit me the other day that many of you did not grow up with fathers or possibly even some of you male role models. And so whenever you hear a pastor or a friend exhort you to be a better, end quote, leader, protector, provider, whatever, no matter how much you want to, you may not know where to begin. And my concern is that you'll grow embittered or want to quit, especially if your wife listens to a podcast like ours and potentially harps on you a little bit. So that's the heart of this particular pod and possibly next week's if we don't finish. Just us guys kind of in the locker room here talking about the basics of being a Christian man. Another thing that concerns me is a lot of the chest thumping from Christian podcasters and even some pastors. It's kind of a fad right now. Almost like being a man of God means being extra rough, tough, smoking, drinking, and trying to start a revolution against all the progressives. And that's not necessarily biblical. So part of my goal in this podcast is making sure we define our manliness according to God's standards, not just some socio-cultural fear or tough guy talk. And listen, I played college sports. I get that world. Uh, the world of valor and courage and laying our life down, all that matters, but our manliness is not dependent solely on our bench press. So let me shoot straight with you. This episode is just going to work like an owner's manual, bullet point by bullet point, brief, listing out the qualities of God's man along with some steps to live it out. But big disclaimer, the simple fact is without God's help, we can't become God's man. So everything we're about to talk about starts with submitting our lives to Christ and trusting his power to transform us. And there's no shortcut to becoming a godly man. We all embark at different ages and stages, so no matter where you are on the journey, lock in for the long haul, because it'll take time to become all God wants you to be, and don't get discouraged. And lastly, know that God cares more about your character than what you might call charisma. So if you don't feel talented or skilled, or feel like other guys have you beat in some prowess, let all that go, because God knows the heart. So here we go. The biblical marks of a man. Let me summarize this for you. There's going to be 20 of them. They're all pulled from 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 10. And here's why I chose them. First, Paul uses these as the marks for healthy spiritual leaders. 
Second, they appear to be marks every Christian man was meant to aim for, goals. Third, these marks all form a composite profile. It's like Paul took the best of the best and he put them all in one place. So what I'm going to do is list each of these marks, explain them briefly, provide you a quick application project on how to build them. Reminder, don't try to tackle them all in one day. Work on them one at a time, chew on them a bit, incorporate them into your daily disciplines, your private studies, your group accountability. Here we go. Mark number one is simply the words above reproach. This means a man of God is a man of good repute or reputation. Uh, It often means exegetically that there's no sin handle to pull on. And most Bible commentators basically say it just means how your friends, your family, your church and community view you. So basically, you want to ask the question, would friends trust you with their money? Are you known as a kind or caring person? Do friends think you love your family? Uh, That you're humble? That you don't let people down? That you won't take advantage of others? That you don't use people? That you tend to be fair? That you respect authority? That you hang in when the going gets tough? Or you're teachable? So just kind of review those things in your mind and ask yourself, what would my family, my friends, and my church community say about me? And here's a project that you can use to begin building a godly reputation. Sit down with the people closest to you, typically that's your family, and ask some really honest questions. For example, do you seek me out as a man to share personal information with? Do you trust me with personal information? Or is our friendship growing closer or more strained over time? Or do people recommend me when there's a difficult task that needs to be done? Now, listen, don't ask people who just know you at a surface level because you can impress at a distance, but you influence up close. You want to ask people that know you well. And if you find those closest to you don't find you dependable, then there's a very high chance others don't either. But the opposite is also true. If your wife and kids view you as a man of integrity, it's likely others do as well. You'll be amazed at what you learn from people close to you. A few months back, I asked one of our kids if he viewed me as an honest man. He immediately recalled a time, four years ago, by the way, when I didn't keep a promise to buy him a milkshake. Yikes. The Bible is clear, number two, that God's man must be a, you ready, one-woman man. Literally married to one woman, loyal to one woman, and to her alone. Paul specifies this in 1 Timothy 3.2. But Jesus extended a man's morality beyond the, the mere act of physical intercourse and said in Matthew 5.28, quote, Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. To lust for her just means to desire greatly that sexual relationship. And obviously, Jesus is drawing a line between temptation, which we all are targeted with, and lust, which is the secret act of mentally enjoying sex or fantasizing about a woman that's not her wife. Now, the relativity spectrum is wide here. Of the if and the how, each of us will fight temptation in different ways to stay pure. But there are some practical steps we all must take to be men of high moral quality. First, we must develop good communications with our wife. Typically, a man who has a healthy sex life with his wife will be better suited to handle temptations. And Paul hits this in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. So grab your wife and listen to the lovemaking pod we did a few weeks ago on that subject. Number two, we must initially and intentionally avoid situations that will tempt us. This can be anything from our phone to who we hang out with during business travel. The simple reality is God's man will set up blockades from tempting imagery or situations of any kind. 
And third, we must strengthen ourselves through Bible study and prayer. The simple fact is the more we memorize and meditate on God's word, the less power sinful temptation will have. Conversely, the more we're exposed to illegitimate stimuli, the duller our devotions will become. So here's a little project to ensure you're a one-woman man. Sit with your wife, go on a date night, and discuss the following two questions. Number one, how do you as a woman differ from me as a man in the area of sexual needs? And open up the honest and transparent dialogue, which leads to question number two. What can we each do to better meet each other's needs sexually? All right, mark of a godly man number three is being temperate. And I know you probably think that means moderate or docile, but the word Paul uses is more of a spiritual clarity or eternal perspective. I like to think of it as steadfast or stable or calm, cool, and collected. I'm always amazed at how my wife responds to loud noises. She's not here for this and she won't hear it, so let me just give you an example. She does a yelp or a jump, and that's okay for my wife. But God's men are not supposed to be skittish. And this includes every area of life. Of course, physically, when we hear noises, we don't want to fear. We want to be able to handle it. But also emotionally, when we receive hard news, we don't want to break down. We want to learn to process and look for solutions. Or spiritually, all around us, we see men freaking out about the end of the world and how progressive agendas are destroying the West, gender dysphoria, nuclear war, North Korea and Putin. But a godly man understands the brevity of life the coming of the king, and he doesn't allow himself to be caught up in fear. If you'd like to do a profound word study, brothers, on this, just look at how Paul uses the word temperate or sober in his writings. In the back of your Bible, just open the concordance and look it up. You'll see how it all comes back to three words, faith, hope, and love. God's man is a man of faith, a man of hope, and a man of selfless love. And think how opposite that is to some of the chest-thumping tweets we read all the time. Faith is a silent confidence of things unseen. Hope is expectation of God's eternal promises. And love is unconditional and relentless self-sacrifice. So here's a project. If you want to test what we could call your temperance, just grab a piece of paper and ask yourself some questions. Number one, how strong is my faith in God's word regarding the future? Do I really believe Jesus is going to come fix all this? That he's got a plan for my life? Life and for my family's life? Number two, am I investing in things of this world or the things of Christ in the future? Am I a man who cares more about the kingdom of God or my own little petty kingdom on earth? And number three, am I a man of love? Do people view me as generous or humble or courteous or patient or kind and self-controlled? And this is key. In times of stress or conflict, Learn to pause, to pray, and to ask God what he's trying to teach you. Literally train yourself not to overreact, not to stress out, and not to fear. Moving on, mark number four of a godly man is prudence, which just means a sound mind. If you analyze the word alongside passages like Romans 12.3, you'll see it just means he's a humble man, a guy who has a proper view of himself, knowing that any good that comes in him or from him comes first from God. Paul never got over that fact that God's grace called him and redeemed him and used him, and a true view of divine grace always sends a man to praise and prayer. But we have to balance that. See, having a correct perspective doesn't mean we are to be withdrawn and silent. Meekness isn't weakness. Paul also told Timothy to never be ashamed and that he had, hadn't been given a spirit of timidity. So even though a prudent man recognizes his inability of self, he also recognizes his ability in Christ. Though he fights for nothing in his name, he stands boldly as a herald in Christ's name. 
So if you wonder whether or not you have a balanced view of yourself, here's a great project. Order Lou Priolo's book. It's titled Pleasing People. I just looked. It's 14 bucks on Amazon. And take a hard look as you read it at why you do and say the things you do. Now, here's a big warning. The first half of the book will tear you down. It's like muscles. That lactate acid is going to build up. But I promise the second half of that book is going to build you back stronger spiritually than when you began. Okay, mark number five is respectable, respectable. And this isn't something we talk about much in Christian circles, but we should. Because the word Paul uses actually means well-ordered or well-arranged, or even cleanly. It's interesting, Paul uses the same word to describe the way, speaking of our ladies, a woman should dress when she goes to church, being ordered and making her claim to godliness, 1 Timothy 2.10. He even uses it to describe how workers should adorn and quote the gospel, meaning to serve in a way that brings respectability to their profession of faith. And the point is pretty clear. A Christian man's orderly life should adorn the teachings of the Bible. Whether it's dress or speech, his budget, the cleanliness of his car or home, his office, or even the way he conducts his work, he's to be a man of order, like God is a God of order. So please hear me, brothers. I'm not talking about how expensive or fancy your external accoutrements are, as that's specific to class and culture, right? But regardless of your lifestyle, it's important to order that lifestyle well. For most men, there's no excuse for overspending, for untidy clothing, a dirty home, unhealthy habits, terminal tardiness, lack of sleep, or undisciplined work hours. And it's very easy to review this particular area of our lives. Just take a moment and evaluate your lifestyle honestly. Number one, what's your external appearance? Outside of medical issues that you can't control, are you, for the most part, healthy? Or number two, do you dress in a way that brings respect to your Lord and to his church? Are you generally clean, or do you tend to be a little messy? Number three, do you keep your home clean? Is your home used to glorify God, and how so? Number four, what words do you use? Are they words that edify, or do they tend to be disrespectful or unthoughtful? Number five, are you generally on time, or are you known for being late, often making excuses? Again, this isn't about life level, but lifestyle. How do you manage what you've been allotted by God? And mark number six, an area I'm constantly having to work on, is hospitality. The act of Christian love, where we show care to others, first to our church friends, but also to neighbors, and even at times those we don't know. Certainly cultures vary and needs change. We see that even in the Bible, where one church needs help, but another city's doing fine. In our era of social welfare, most people who truly need help can get it if they're willing to abide by the rules set forth by the government. But God's man will still be an hospitable man who's ready and willing to care for the needs of others nearby. And here's where biblical love gets involved. Biblical love is not a feeling. So being hospitable can't simply be a thing where you feel a heart tug and visit the soup kitchen one Thanksgiving. But instead, it's a choice where we decide to invest in our church and our community. And here's a simple project to get you thinking. Look for opportunities to share your home with church people. It could be pastors, missionaries, or just members in the church and invite them to dinner, even to stay over if needed. And if that sounds like a bit much, talk to your wife about hosting a Bible study group with the church's support. The point is, find ways for your family to care. Okay, mark number seven. Is God's man is able to teach? And that little word scares a lot of men. It's often used to designate qualifications for the pastorate. And typically when we hear it, we picture some famous preacher or professor who has a special gift. 
But it's important to note that it's smack dab in the middle of a list of character traits, not skill sets, and can also mean that a man simply has the right attitude towards Scripture and the understanding of Scripture that allows him to rightly teach the Scripture when needed, and certainly not that he needs to be some masterful or world-changing preacher. And this makes sense when we think about the simplicity of the church through the ages. Even today, when I travel to India or the Philippines or China and visit village pastors, most of these men aren't polished orators, and they certainly don't have theological libraries to mere Spurgeon. They're simply men who love the word and live the word and do their best to share the word, and their hearts are content in the word. And that seems to be what Paul wants of all men. Men in the church who love the word and use the word to instruct their marriage and their children and their friends in the church. We are to be Bible men. So here's a quick project to consider. Number one, make sure you're in a Bible study group at church in which you get to share openly. Number two, consider enrolling in an online Bible course where you can join the discussion boards. Number three, begin to cultivate the ability to share your biblical insights, here's the key, without pride, meaning aggressively, or passivity, meaning staying silent. And number four, when people rebut you, never fight back, but learn to respond warmly and charitably. And number five, learn to never embarrass anyone publicly. All right, mark number eight, not addicted to wine. And I know this will hit close to home for some, but if you're a man who likes to drink, please listen. The Greek that Paul uses here is literally a man who sits too long at his wine or a man who overdrinks. And the consistent Bible teaching on alcohol is that drunkenness is a sin. Being tipsy is a sin. Being blitzed is a sin. Being buzzed is a sin. Any imbalance is a sin because it replaces our submission to the Spirit. Proverbs explains it this way. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has fights? Who has complaining? Who has wounds? Who has red eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Because it sparkles in the cup, it goes down smooth, but in the end it bites like a serpent. Simply put, alcohol is a trap. And brothers, our wives see it, our kids see it, and often there's no going back. And that's why Paul says, don't be enslaved to anything, whether it's alcohol, pornography, eating, tobacco, or just plain laziness. Because your body is an instrument for Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.19, and to be given 100% to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So here's a great analysis to perform on the alcohol front. Number one, just ask your wife and kids if they like or dislike when you drink alcohol. Number two, ask your wife or kids if you've ever harmed your Christian testimony by overindulging in alcohol. And number three, if the answer to either of those questions is yes, confess to a pastor or church leader. Number four, develop a specific goal to eradicate the alcohol use from daily life. And number five, if you don't see victory, immediately set up time with a good biblical counselor. Okay, mark number nine is another gut punch. Not self-willed. We all know what self-will is, selfishness, or the desire to have our own way, whether it's marital, familial, business, or church, and even when people don't listen to us, we still make it clear, I told you so. In short, a self-willed man is an arrogant man. He's a greedy man, a vain man, who builds his little world around himself. Brothers, if your family struggles financially, where instead of working extra hours and saying notification or properly budgeting, you're scrolling YouTube or watching ESPN, you're likely selfish. Brothers, if you feel forced to be a dictator at home, raising your voice and scaring the family to show up at church or read their Bibles or obey, it could be because you're selfish. If you find you're always the lone man out on the elder board or the nay vote in the congregation, the guy that's throwing fits on the pickleball court or playing hoops, it's likely you're selfish. 
Or you're constantly upset with employees or coworkers, wondering why they can't do all that you've asked and they never seem to measure up. It's probably selfishness. So let me just offer a big warning here out of love. Brothers, if you continue down that road of self-will, you'll end up alone. If you hold on to everything and you force people to do things your way, if you never show respect, never sacrifice for others, never love, never give, no opportunities or allow failure, you never live, laugh, and forgive, you're going to lose your marriage, you're going to lose your children, your friends, your job, your church, and you'll end up alone. And if you sense that selfishness is driving your life, here's what I want you to do. Grab a Bible and begin memorizing Galatians 5. Paul says, you are called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one simple command, love your neighbor as yourself, meaning you're going to view them as more important than you. And he actually goes on to clarify the battle that happens in our heart. He says, I want you to walk by the Spirit so you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. And then he gives a list of what each entails and includes. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying, and drunkenness, and carousing. Things of which I forewarn you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's your lifestyle, if that's your practice, he says, you are not a Christian. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. So brothers, did you catch the theme there? He says the whole law of God is summarized in that one phrase, love your neighbor. So here's what you do. If you struggle with selfishness, print that paragraph out. And then mark in red all the words related to selfishness, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts, disputes, dissensions. And then in green pen, mark out all the words that relate to others. Peace and patience and kindness, gentleness and self-control. And take that little paper, put it in the front cover of your Bible, and dwell on it every morning before you start your day and every night before you go to bed. All right, we're out of time. Last one, Mark number 10. Not quick-tempered or pugnacious. Always reminds me of those little pug dogs with a scrunch face. Just means an angry man. And this comes in all shapes and sizes. Some of us are outright tantrum guys with a quick trigger and a sharp tongue. We pound the table or put a hole in the wall. Others are more of a slow burn guy until there's a silent treatment or eruption. And even others, just a spoiled brat with a bit of passive-aggressive moping. And all of that's anchored in one thing, friends, insecurity. Where threats, real or perceived, prompt a defense of our territory or a defense of our influence. And here's the short of it, my brothers. No matter the cause, anger is a mark of spiritual immaturity and must be dealt with. Because men of God want to model their life after the Son of God, who even though he was ill-treated, never took vengeance or reviled back. So here's a real quick project if you're prone to anger. Ask yourself the following questions. Do I get angry easily? Do I find the feelings persist? Do I try to take matters into my own hands? And then who do I model my reactions after? And right there's the key. Most guys with anger issues saw anger growing up and had a bad model. So starting tonight, grab your Bible and read how Jesus responded in the days surrounding his crucifixion. For example, John 18 and 19. And every night, read and reread how he responded to insults, to mockery, to betrayal, and then ask the Spirit, to make Christ your new model. Well, hey, 10 down and 10 to go. We'll try to hit the rest next week. 
I just wanted to take a second and encourage you, brothers. If you made it through all of that and you're still listening, you're head and shoulders above most men. And we live in an on-demand, microwave, insta-click culture where everything is easy, but the real stuff, the right stuff, the eternal stuff takes work. And if you're listening to a podcast like this, it means you love God, you want to please Him, and I really want to commend you. If you need anything, message us anytime, Dr. Anthony G. Wood on Instagram or Date Night with the Woods. I'll do my best to answer or send you a book that can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I lift up my brothers, the men, your men, who want to be faithful, who want to be honorable, noble, and self-controlled. Give them strength this week to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to be used for great and mighty things until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to our date night fam, Lord Willem will be back in 168 short hours. Send us a message, leave a review. Thanks again to Ethan, our producer, the beautiful Bree, who's no longer here, the incredible people of Mission Bible Church. She'll be back next week. Keep living for the gospel and fighting for the family. Mm-hmm.